and welcome back to the Face Seeking Understanding podcast. I'm Roland, this is Matt, and we are busy going through the book of Ecclesiastes as part of our series on wisdom in the Old Testament. So, so far, we've taken a look at chapters one and two. First episode, we looked at this notion of Hevel and happiness, like the project of Kohelet in, in the book, which is to find happiness. And he gets frustrated um, with all the Hevel that he sees in the world that sort of gets in the way of him finding that happiness. And then last week we took a look, or last episode, we took a look at, um, what did we take a look at? We took a look at his argument that he gave against a particular way of thinking about happiness. Now in thinking about it a bit more, I think the way that I would summarize it is like this, is that he wanted to show that happiness is not found in being better off. Okay. Which is, I mean, that's a pretty bold claim. Yeah. Because... It's almost, for some people, that's almost a definition. That happiness is about being better off, right? Yeah. But, uh, and then he looked at these two different ways of, of how that might be the case, right? So he, he looked at what I called the way of folly, which isn't about being a fool, but it's about using the fool's way of evaluating whether you're better off or not. And so for the fool, you're better, in the way of folly, you're better off if you get what your heart desires. So presumably you start from a situation where you don't have everything your heart desires, and then you pursue what your heart desires and you achieve it. And then you're, you're happy once you're satisfied with what your heart desires. Problem we found there was you're never satisfied. You get to what you want and there's just another peak down the way. That's the next thing that you want and the next thing that you want. And so you can never really achieve happiness that way. That sort of reminds me of the sort of principle that um, once you've got your basic needs met, um, anything that you add to that, you only, you only get marginally happier. Right. Um, I think the theory is that I forget the, the details of it, but but the theory is that um, once you've got your basic needs met, yeah, sure, you can get that that cool thing, and then you enjoy that cool thing. But then once the um, the euphoria settles, then you're back to that same baseline that you were at before. Yes, and you're looking over to the next cool thing. Yeah, and it seems to be Kohelet's journey here. Yeah, whenever I see this, I mean, I don't know if this is a wide enough account of what what's going on psychologically, but. To me, it seems like part of what your heart's attracted to is the notion of novelty. And yeah. as soon as you have, as soon as you have it for long enough, that that sense of novelty kind of dissipates, yeah. and now it's just a new norm. And so now you need something else to keep you excited and and go go after. There is a matter of which it is said. Look, this is new. It's already been in the ages that were before us. There's no remembrance of the beginning, and moreover, of the future that will still be. Is there will be no memory of it with those who come after. You might think that there's novelty, but it's all been before. Yeah. Um, and soon enough, you're going to feel like it's been before. You're going to be on to the next thing. Right. So that was the first way of evaluating whether you're better off. The second way is what we could call the way of the wise. And so here, instead of comparing yourself before and after you get the desires of your heart, you train your heart, you train your mind, and you train, you know, in all sorts of skill. And so what you think is that you're better off than the person who doesn't train in those ways. So the wise evaluates himself as being better by having some advantage over the fool. Now, Kahelet did say there is some advantage. There's some aspect in which, or some sense in which being wise is better than being a fool. But in the senses that matter, he's like, uh, it's not enough to, to make that the place where happiness is found, right? Yeah. And so then I think he did these two things. He said, well, the wise gets what the fool deserves and the fool gets what the wise deserves. These yeah. are like the double, two, two sides of the same coin to show you that really... Wisdom isn't a way to be better, guaranteed to be better off than the fool. Yeah. 
Um, and there we saw death is a big aspect of that. Um, so you die like the fool, not just that you die and the fool dies, but sometimes the wise person dies at a young age or they die before they've managed, managed to make anything of themselves or they did some great things, but they were quickly forgotten, just like the fool was quickly forgotten, mm. uh, all sorts of things like that. And then similarly, the fool, even if you, even if you manage to accrue great things, when you die, you're going to give it over to the. You could give it over to the fool. Like it's it's yeah. pretty much just randomness about whether you give it over to the fool or not. Yeah. Uh, in which case, the fool gets the benefit from the work of the wise. Yeah. And so the fool gets what the wise is it. And so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the wise even even when they've got all the things, even when they've done all the work, even when they've put in all the effort, all they get is stress from it. Yeah. They just lie awake thinking, oh, but what if this happens? What if that happens? Have I calculated things correctly? Is this investment secure? Yeah, 100%. And so at the end of it, he, within his persona of the king, um, who's going after happiness like this, he's very disappointed. He's like, well, uh, what now? Like, what are we supposed to do, right? And he kind of just like throws his hands up and is like, okay, I guess God needs to give us happiness. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of where he ended it. He, it wasn't a very positive ending um, at, at, the, at that point. So now we come to chapter three, and my claim is that at this point, he is pretty much starting over again. So he, he's, he's taking off this, um, can I say veneer? He's taking off this like mask of the persona mm. and he's, and he's like learning, he's, he's learned the lesson from it. And now he's saying, look, now let me show you how it really is done. Like, let me show you the right conclusion to draw from this. So let me, let me just articulate what I think is the structure of the book as a whole. And then we can see how chapter three fits in. So, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, it was the word. In the beginning was the word. Oh, my word. Okay. <laughs> um, in the opening of the book of Ecclesiastes <laughs> is Divrei Kohelet. The words of Kohelet. <laughs> um, so Let me in, double check that. I want to make sure that I'm not lying to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Divrei Kohelet, Ben David, Melech, Yushalayim. The words of Kohelet, son of David, king in Israel and Jerusalem, sorry. So we have, uh, in the beginning, we have this introduction was the first section, right? That was chapter one and that was broken down into two parts. So we had a poetic introduction. I don't know how to, where to draw this. I'll just, I'll, we had initially had a poetic introduction in, uh, one verse two to 11. And then we had a more prosaic introduction or prosaic part of the introduction in uh, 12 to 18, where he kind of. He gets off of his soapbox and he starts to explain to you why he's making these grand claims about reality. Right. Uh, then we had, it's the the two problems, the three problems with the two things, right? So there's folly and wisdom, the way of folly, the way of wisdom, but the way of wisdom has like two objections to it. So we have, we can, it's tricky how we carve that up, um, but I'm, I'll just make it three for now, um, as long as we understand that these last two are connected by wisdom. <laughs> So we had the objection to the way of folly, which is unrest, that you, your heart never finds rest in what, it, what you pursue. You had the, the first objection to wisdom, which is death. The reality of death makes the wise like the fool. And the third objection we could call incongruity, where the fool gets what the wise deserves. Things don't work out as they should. Um, so these are the three, uh, well, these are the four sections, I could say, of, of this whole, of the stage in Carl Hellet's, um argument. Now there's technically, you know, a, a, you could also say, well, there's a, a section at the end, which is like his concluding thoughts. So that's where he exactly. was giving up at the end. And the last and, two verses, yeah. of, the last three verses of chapter two. Right. 
So we could say that, and then so that kind of rounds it off. We've got an introduction, three points, and a conclusion. Cool. That sounds good. So now what he's going to do for the rest of the book is retrace his steps um, in a much on a much grander scale, right? I mean, this is two chapters, and now we're going to look at eight chapters. Mm-hmm. So it's like four times the size. Yeah. Um, and go through each of these now with a new outlook, which was, and the new outlook is what was going to be introduced here in chapter three. So we have, just to draw that out again. Um, okay, so we got chapter three here is the introduction, and there'll be a poetic, um, it's slightly differently balanced this time, but there's a poetic introduction and a prosaic introduction, which also goes through two parts we'll get to. Then um, four to six, he will go over again the way of folly, and he'll he'll usher in a, a, a lot more examples of where folly and Hevel, and uh, sorry, folly comes up against Hevel, the way of folly comes up against Hevel, in, and intersperse it with um, positive comments of his own that sort of uh, are drawing from this new vision that he has about where happiness, how we should really think about happiness. Right. Then from seven to I think it's nine verse ten or nine verse nine, um, he's looking at um, well seven to the end he's looking at wisdom, but for seven seven to nine verse ten he's looking at wisdom in relation to death, uh, wisdom and folly in relation to death I should say, and then for the rest of it uh, nine let's say nine verse eleven to twelve is it. Oh, it's, it's to the end of 11. Oh, okay. What's the last? Oh, I'll just say it. Huh? 11.10. 11.10. Um, there he's looking at it in relation to incongruity. And then in this last section, he's got his uh, 12 verse 1 to 8, which is his um, concluding thoughts again. Right. Before we, before he hands over the mic to the author to give his final, for the author to give his final conclusion. Right. So this is going to be this is going to be sort of the framework that we use, I think, um, and we'll see over the course of the next few episodes whether or not it, it proves itself helpful. Yeah. Um, but this is sort of how I think the book is structured, and uh, Carl Head's general discussion is sort of framed. Cool. So in this episode, we're just looking at chapter chapter three uh, with this with his re- his new introduction. Any any thoughts on that? Um, it it's uh, yeah. I mean, I think it 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 does seem to map quite nicely on like the beginning of chapter one, the beginning of chapter three, with the poetic introduction. Um, I don't know. There, there seems to be some some connection there between um the relentless perpetuity that you see in chapter one and um how things just seem to go on and on and on, and then chapter three actually coming back round was it. Same but different. Um, a reflection on time and yeah, reflection on on seasons and um, how you know life goes through its again life goes through its ebbs and flows. Yeah. Um, and then also echoing that same question that was um, there in the beginning. The the um, what a number of people have talked about as the programmatic question of the book. What profit is there for a person in all their um, labor under the sun? Um, yeah, we see that in in three verse nine. Yeah, he also he repeats so in in uh, one verse twelve to eighteen. He's got these like two sections where he like says something and then he gives like a a claim, right? He said, "What does uh, in uh, twelve to fifteen he says, um, or twelve to fourteen rather he says, what does crooked cannot be made straight?" Mm. Right? He talk he's talking about like the inability to change things to 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 benefit yourself. Yeah, and then similarly in at the end of in verse eighteen he says. You know, with wisdom, there's much taxation, right? And similarly, in chapter three, his prosaic part is broken down into these two parts, where you have um, 
he's talking about how we can't change anything mm. because God, because God's actions are set and we can't override those actions. Right. Right. And so we just have to figure out what to do in light of that. Right. Yeah. And then the second as the second part of it is uh, the second part of chapter three, where it's uh, chapter um, eighteen to the end, um, is again pointing to our place that like the limitations of wisdom, right? So he's saying like, what benefit does man have over the beasts? Presumably, wisdom would have been the answer, mm. right? I sure. mean, like what what Aristotle will say we're rational animals. I imagine that Hebrew will say we're wise animals, right? Yeah, maybe. Um, and he talks about how, like, in the place of justice, it's injustice. In the place of injustice, it's justice. It's like, where am I supposed to, like, how am I supposed to make sense of this, right? That's very vexing and, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and so we see the same sorts of general areas of life being tackled. Um, but he does it in a different way. You see nods to the same phenomena that he mentioned in 12 to 18, or chapter 1. Mm. But he's doing it with a, what seems to me to be a different tone. He's got a different outlook. Yeah. Whereas in the beginning, he was frustrated because nothing changes. Right, that's his sort of. If nothing changes, how can I be better off? Mm. Right now, his opening principle is, and this is where we start in in chapter uh, in three, verse one to eight, is that there's a time for everything. Mm. Right, which is like, do things change? Yeah, maybe. Like maybe these things go away and these things come and so on. But the important thing is that there's a time for everything. Mm. And I think the thing that I get a bit confused by, but the the use of the word season is more helpful, I think, in this perspective. So we're not saying there's a time for everything in the sense that everything is time bound. Right. Right. We're not saying it's like two hours for this, two hours for that and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, it's more like there is a time, like uh, man does not know his time is a phrase that he'll use later. Right. Like where he is in the timeline is, is more um, what he's getting at. Mm. But the use of the word season is quite interesting, isn't it? Like. Uh, or did he say, does it say occasion here in your... CSP's got occasion. Um, let's see what how this is going. And Abby goes to time. ESV says there's a season and there's a season and there's a time for every matter under heaven. A season and a time. Yeah. Oh, and then NIV <laughs> goes a time and a season. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, what can the what can the Hebrew tell us? <laughs> the, the King James there um, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the sun. It goes with the, the same as the ESV there. Okay, um, you're doing season time, so yeah. I don't know what the NIV is doing. <laughs> but uh, um, that's interesting. I mean, the notion of season is an interesting idea, mm. right? It, it, it's that he you can see that he sort of because a season is like the classic cyclic phenomenon, yeah. right? So now he's not saying, oh, I'm frustrated because I can't get to a point where I'm better. It's like, no, there's every year, there's a time for summer, there's a time for winter, mm -hmm. there's a time for, thing, you know. Yeah. Which is a completely different, it's sort of a, a completely different outlook. He's looking at the thing itself rather than what it can produce. Yeah. It seems, the word the word here for season seems to be a very uncommon one. The only other place that I'm seeing just of a, quick look here in the Hebrew Bible is Esther, mm. where it's talking about um, the days of Purim um, should be observed their appointed seasons. Okay. Um, so, I mean, then there, like, it very literally has um, kind of seasons of the year, different appropriate times for, mm -hmm. um, you know, in this case, Purim. Um, what is Purim? It's a festival okay. in the Jewish calendar. Um, 
I don't even know if this is going to come up at the moment. The pointed hour. That's another glass. Ooh, what does Ezra have to say? <laughs> um, let our leaders represent the entire assembly. Then all those in our towns who have married foreign women come at appointed times together with the elders to judge in, uh, and judges in each town in order to avert the fierce anger of our God. Okay, so it's sort of like allocating your slot. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Right, that's, right, right. That's what it seems like. You're booking. Uh, <laughs> you've, you've got your booking. Yeah, so I mean, they need to get around to everybody. So, okay, um, everybody can have their slot where we're going to um, deal with the matter. Um, seems like a similar thing's going on in Nehemiah, maybe. Yeah, so... Um, so I, the word for season... That's well, the word that's getting translated season can yeah. just mean like appointed time or allocated time slot, yeah, yeah, that's what it seems. That's what it seems to me, just from a quick look here, okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting, yeah, because I mean, that was the one thing that I found interesting in the examples that he gives is he never actually just says like summer, winter, like right? He gives yeah. examples of a time to be born, a time to die, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like, which I guess, you know, he, he clearly has that in mind, but he just doesn't uh, mention it. A time to break down, a time to build up. Um, yeah. Um, there have sort of been two main ways that, that this has been carved out. The one is that um, there's, an, a se- there's a season and a time for everything, a purpose under the skies. Um, this idea that um, there are appropriate times for different things. And the, the goal here is to kind of, slot in at the appropriate time mm-hmm. that um the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing sort of thing okay yeah um you know if um aristotle talks about doing the right thing in the right way at the right time yeah yeah um and i mean uh, uh, on the surface of it like well as a principle i i think that that's right, right. i just don't know that that's what kahela is actually saying yeah um it seems more like um that life has its different seasons yeah, um, it kind of goes. Life has its different moments. That times when this happens, times when that happens, times when this other thing happens, time where that things happen. There's just going to yeah. be this ebb and flow that we need to accept about life, and God is in control of it all. Yeah, let that shape the, and then therefore let that shape the way that we think about happiness, right? It, within the context yes. of this project. Al- yeah, although I'd be hesitant about about importing that into the appropriate seasons. Um, yeah, that, that as an overall, um, this is the reality of life. Um, so consider that when you're thinking about how to live yes. rather than trying to find our place in the different seasons of life that uh, are being laid out here. Yeah, yeah, right. Not least of all, because you don't have a choice when you're going yeah. to be born or when, yes. you're gonna, yes. when you're going to die. Um, yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, in, in the po- in both in both introductions, the poetic side of it is point is looking to general phenomena in reality, right? Like, I mean, he, when he was looking for things to change he was looking at the sun rising and setting and rising again yeah and the sea flowing into the ocean oh sorry the rivers flowing into the ocean yeah and like things that we don't have control over yeah we don't have control over that right but he's kind of looking out there to say okay is there a general principle that i can then try to apply it when my own pursuit of happiness right yeah and and so now again when he goes back to this poetic view he's saying well i see this general phenomenon in reality mm-hmm. i can't control it or anything like that but like <clears throat> maybe i could see how that works, not works itself out, but I could take that principle and see what it would look like in an application to the question of happiness. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's also maybe something that might be interesting to throw out is that um, I mentioned in the previous episode when um, Kohelet's talking, 
um, he's kind of running through his different accomplishments and all that, um, that uh, Jenny Barber in her, her, her thesis is that um, sort of embedded there in the narrative is, um, yeah, it, it alludes to Solomon most prominently, but also the other kings of Israel. And so embedded in the narrative is sort of the life and times of the nation of Israel, okay. the kings. Um, it's casting an eye over the history of Israel and the accomplishment of the different kings and saying, well, what profit is there for a person in all their effort? It all just amounts to Hevel. Mm. Um, and she makes a similar connection here with um, the the seasons here that we see in chapter three. So she kind of looks at the, some of the intertextual links um, between chapter three and other parts of the Hebrew Bible and kind of notices that um, there's a time to plant, a time to uproot, calling to mind the way that um, the nation of Israel is planted. That actually is, um, I seem to think in Exodus, it talks about the way that Israel's planted. But here's the, the language of planting. and. But yes, yeah, yeah. Um, there's the language of, of planting the covenant made with David um, in 2 Samuel 7, the way that um, they're established as a people, but then the way that they're uprooted. And um, say Jeremiah when um, they flouted God's covenant, um, or there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Um, maybe thinking of the the prophecies in Ezekiel, um, where the people are slain as they're sent into exile, um, but God says that He'll breathe new life into His people. Um, and in Hosea six, that um, they're invited to return to God because um, although He has torn them to pieces, He will heal us. Uh, though he has injured us, he'll bind up our wounds. Um, mm. And so he has six. Um, so she sort of, um, we can multiply examples, but she sort of mm. goes through that that to say that what we have here is not just a generic, these are the different things that we can expect over the course of our lives, but uh, and this alludes to the life and times of the nation of Israel. Mm. And as um, God's people um, at this point in history thinking, what does that mean for us? Um, where do we fit into God's plans and purposes? Mm. Frankly, it seems quite mysterious. Well, that, it's interesting because that way of thinking, because that way of thinking about it fits well with what he then goes on to speak about, mm. where it, it, it seems to almost come out of nowhere that he says that he understands that God is the one in control of all these things, right? Yeah. Um, because he doesn't mention that in 3 verse 1 to 8, but then when he then moves on in 9 to the end, it's very clear that he understands God is doing everything. So he says in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time, mm. right? Which is like, oh, now maybe you could say, yeah, cool, because he believes in God, a God of a creation, which fine, he does. But fine, yeah. it, it, it's even more at home with that idea that, well, God has been instrumental in his interactions with Israel and what he's managed to do with them, right? Like sometimes he brings armies to wipe them out. Sometimes he um, gives them blessing and, you know, and it's sort of up to him how uh, those things happen. Yeah. So... Just as in before, he uh, in, in chapter 1, he had this principle, nothing changes. And then he applied it into two cases. There was 1 verse 12 to 14 and 1 verse 15 to 18. Um, so too, he does the same thing here. Mm. right? So he says, well, there's a time for everything. And then in 3 verse 9 to 15, he applies this principle to say, well, there's a time for every person. And then in... Um, which has implicated... There's a time for every person that God is in control of. right? Mm. The God is given... The business that God has given man to be busy with is that they have to figure out how to live in their time, mm. right? Which is, again, calls to mind the thing that he said in uh, 
1 verse 12 or 13, where he says, I've seen that God has given man an unhappy business to be busy with. And, right? And so now we see, okay, he's got a different, he's got a very different outlook, right? There he was unhappy. Here it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, then similarly in 16 to the end, he talks about how there's a time for every deed. So he applies the principle of there's being a time for everything to there being a time where God will judge everything. Mm. Right? Which is his sort of way of coming to um, to terms with the fact that right now there's um, wickedness in the place of justice. Mm. Right? And it's like, well, we know there's a time for everything. That's a general phenomenon we can, ex- we can see. So there's going to be a time for every deed at some point. Yeah. Um, so we can look at each of those, but I think what I want to emphasize right now is that some people try to draw a wedge between the author and Kohelet, mm. right? Yeah. Except right here, you have pretty much the statement of that the author will give at the end. Fear God and keep his commandments because he will judge everything. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, these are the explicit uh, implications he draws out here, right? He says... Um, God, so in verse 14, he says, God has done it so that people will fear before him. And then... Um, before him. In, it's a funny fear, Yeah, yeah. And then in um, verse 17, he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and every work. Right? So, yeah. so in my mind, but also at the end, despite how, you know, emotional and dramatic this book is going to become... Mm. Like if this is the his conclusion, if this is his like sort of new project, his outlook that's going to shape the rest of his project, we have to understand that the author and Kohelet are basically on the same train. They're on the same side. Of yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, the one the one way I've heard this explained is that in chapter three here, when he talks about that God acts so that people fear him, he really does mean fear. That. Right. God's ways are so mysterious and things feel so up in the air that that can be terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's anything to that? I mean, so we when we looked at fear before, right, in a few episodes of a while back now, mm-hmm. um, we saw that there was a negative aspect to it. But I mean, I guess the question is, um, so the, the two, it, it, the question comes down to the two uh, aspects that uh, the two attitudes that we identified there, right? Either yeah. the fear of God can make you flee from Him, or the fear of God can make you cling to Him, mm-hmm. right? And as far as I can see, Kahelet is saying, "Well, we should work with God, right? Like He's made everything beautiful in our time, including us, um, and He's um, that everyone should eat and drink and have pleasure in all His toil. This is God's gift to man." In verse thirteen, mm. right? Um, so these don't sound, and the fact that he will ultimately bring about justice at the end, which is a vexing thing for us, um, who want to do the right thing. These don't seem like things that should make me run away from God. These are mm-hmm. things that he's suggesting I walk in step with the way that God has created the world, and I come to terms with that in the way that I seek happiness. Yeah. Um, similarly, at the end, when he gets to his conclusion in 12 verse 1 to 8, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He's not saying like, you know, mm-hmm. screw your creator in the days of your youth or something. <laughs> He's like, no, like yeah. this is the the right thing. Uh, this is the right place to do. So yeah. this to me seems like a lot closer to the idea of pursue God. Now, this is something that became interesting to me out of unrelated research that I've been doing recently. Um, because part of the way that we sort of live in light of the fact that everything is beautiful in this time is that instead of 
looking for happiness and trying to be better off. We look for our happiness in trying to um, find pleasure in our toil itself. So whatever we have at the moment, even if we're trying to be better off, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But um, that we're, there's a certain level of contentment and recognizing that what I have, the good I have is a gift from God yeah. and that he's given to me to take pleasure in it, right? Um, and that he will, um, so he says in verse nine, he asks, what does everyone gain from his toil? And then um, the, the main thing in verse, his conclusion in verse 13 is that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. Mm. Now this calls to mind the kinds of promises that God gave in Deuteronomy, mm. right? So if I just pull up one here in Deuteronomy 16, but it comes up a few times, he said the, part of the promises that God gives to his people in the promised land is that the Lord, the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, that you will be altogether joyful. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So if we're already on the train um, where he's calling to mind things from Israel's past, then he's calling them to this very outlook. Um, don't try and make things better for yourself in order to find happiness. Find happiness in God and the, the joy that he gives you in your toil. Mm. I mean, you can always try to be better off. Just don't put it, all your eggs in that basket, you know? Like, sure. Then, like, he's, he's calling them back to the very thing that, the very life that was promised and God created for them um, in Deuteronomy. Yeah. That actually fits in quite well with what uh, Jenny Bauer was saying that we saw earlier, that this is the life and times of the nation of Israel. That it's it's playing into that sort of covenantal dynamic there that is busy being interrogated of this is where we've been. This is how we've come through the exile. This is where we're at as a people um, looking to, to situate us in God's plans and purposes. And frankly, things being quite unclear. Um, but looking to that covenant ideal or that covenant dynamic as um, something to situate us. Yeah, and I mean, this kind of goes to that thing that we were talking about in Proverbs where people want to drive a wedge between the wisdom literature or the, uh, wisdom literature and the covenant, right? They want to say wisdom is on the side of creation and, yeah. and there's the covenant side of things. Yeah, so I mean, there's this strange assumption that just because Ecclesiastes doesn't explicitly allude to or kind of call Deuteronomy to mind like um, we saw in Proverbs. Mm-hmm. I mean, Proverbs, um, particularly the first nine chapters, we saw it saturated in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no getting away from it. But I think what Proverbs is trying to do is it's got um, a very particular agenda there of bringing Deuteronomy to bear on these situations or these circumstances that we're dealing with at the moment. Ecclesiastes isn't couched in that same language. Yeah, it's almost like a more apologetic uh, approach. Hmm. where he's trying to speak to people who are tempted to forget. And, and he's trying to say, okay, well, let me use the language you would use hmm. to show you that your attempt to live a, a, a outside of the covenant is just not going to work. And like, hmm. actually, I want to I want to draw you back to the covenant. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's similar to how we do it in, in apologetics and in normal Christi- Christian thought, right? Like, or in normal everyday life. Like, I don't use a bunch of Christian jargon when talking to people about um, what the Bible says about X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. Even though I ultimately want them to, I want to draw them to read the Bible and sort of know God. Yeah, and it's not everything all at once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I can see why, it, I, I would say, I would imagine that's what motivates Kahelet for um, using a slightly different language to kind of speak to a different audience. Yeah, it might be. Um, I think that the assumption that just because he doesn't use those same words means that he's coming from a different angle with a different perspective mm-hmm. that he disagrees with that mm-hmm. or that he's got this wildly different worldview is this very very strange assumption in scholarship that 
frankly, I think is just circular um, <laughs> and needs to go the way of the dodo. But it's very, it's very, pro- and again, comes down to why we shouldn't call this book wisdom literature. Yeah. That when we do hive it off into its own category, when we do notice that, um, yes, it's, it's not so overt about um, the covenant distinctives, history of Israel, um, there's a temptation to move too quickly to, well, it's just different, okay? Yeah. And, well, when we start scratching, we see, well, for one, it's not. Yeah. But two, um, not using the same words is just not a good argument not to get into that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't really have much else to say right now. I mean, we could obviously go verse by verse, but I don't know if that's going to be too useful. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think let's end it there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that like chapter one sets the sets the tone for what's going to come in his experiment in chapter two. This sort of sets the tone for what's going to come. Like, okay, well, how is God going to be working? What are some of the dynamics that we're going to see play out in the world in the chapters to come? Yeah, That's I, sort of my expectation. Anyway. Yeah, totally. And you will see that he doesn't forget the two paths, the, these two ways. Uh, well, I can't say two ways because that's the folly and wisdom, but these two <laughs> stages, these two approaches to happiness, right? Yeah. Um, he what he's now able to do is like look at it from the outside and say like, oh, look, there's a whole bunch of things. So he'll still, Hevel still appears oh, throughout yeah. the book, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's saying like, this is going to be a lot, there's a lot of Hevel. Let me just show you some more Hevel. And let's, let's discuss some of these issues that come up about the challenges about um, living as if your time, if your time is beautiful or like, you know, um, enjoying your toil. Like what are some of the challenges that come up in that? Yeah. And so, yeah, he hasn't he hasn't forgotten the first stage, but he has sort of he you can he's I would say this indicates that he's taken a new stance and like the rest of the book is trying to show you more and more ways about how that first way of thinking is just completely wrong headed. Yeah. And why there might be a way out of it um in the second way of thinking. Yeah. All right. Well thanks for joining us. Um don't forget to like and subscribe. Uh leave us a rating, leave a review on your favorite podcast and podcast. <laughs> You're American now. (laughs) Chief of the podcast app. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in the next one.